Well, turn with me, if you would, this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Can you imagine this morning what lively debate we would have if I were to ask a a bunch of questions kind of along this vein, should a Christian or church, you fill in the blank. And then after asking uh, questions like that, I said, hey, how about just for everybody who's here, um, free for all, like, what do you think? And we just have this big discussion amongst all of us. Let me give you a few examples. What if I were to ask something like this, should a Christian attend their siblings homosexual wedding? Or this, should a Christian drink alcoholic beverages or get tattoos? Should a Christian educate their child in the public system, the secular public system? Should a Christian draw their dating boundaries right here? Or maybe should they draw their dating boundaries right over here somewhere? Should a church have multiple services or perhaps even multiple sites? Or, you know, just to really keep things particularly and especially exciting, maybe we could even throw out a couple COVID questions like, should a Christian get vaccinated? Or should a church submit to the government when the government expects dot, dot, dot? Any of those questions would make for a very, very lively church discussion, wouldn't it? In fact, I think on some of those questions, if we really threw them out there and just let people talk, we might split our church before the day was over. Any of those questions really would make for lively church discussion. Why is that? Well, because Christians feel very, very deeply. But not just deeply. Christians also feel differently on a variety of such issues, particularly those issues that are arguably somewhat unclear in Scripture, or they're not maybe specifically legislated in the Bible. And maybe you're trying to draw from this biblical principle or that one or this aspect of God's nature and character. Or maybe there's just all these different realms of Scripture that you're drawing, true to, drawing from to try to answer whatever question it is. But, but God, has, it's not like the book of Levit- Leviticus where God again and again just said, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. You're trying to take all these gospel principles and apply them. And often as a result of that, Uh, We really do feel deeply and differently on a variety of such issues. And the Corinthians had an issue of their own and a question that went with it. And their question was something like this. Should a Christian eat meat that has been offered to an idol? Now, I'm pretty sure that's not the question that you and I are sitting here really scratching our heads about today and wondering about. Should I eat meat offered to idols? Yeah, you probably never really wrestled through that one. But as Paul helps the Corinthians wrestle through that question and it kind of helps them, here's what you should be thinking about and this is what should be going through your mind. As he guides them through that, the things that he puts on the table become particularly helpful to guide us as we work through our own questions today and issues today. Uh, Maybe I could just give you a bit of context here on this meat offered to idols thing. Um, Large portions of the food supply in Corinth would have passed through Uh, basically pagan religious ceremonies that acknowledge the existence of other gods other than the one true God. And not only did they acknowledge the existence of these gods, uh, these ceremonies also gave thanks and praise to these gods for the food that was about to be eaten. And much of the meat would have first uh, been offered as a sacrifice to some god, and no doubt many of the vegetables as well. So if you lived in Corinth or many other places of the ancient world like Corinth, you would have come into contact with food like this that had been offered to idols. You would have come into contact with it a few different ways. 
Uh, first, you would have come into contact with it at the local market. Whatever market day was in the week, you show up at the market to buy your groceries, your meat and your vegetables and all these other different things. And there at the market, probably most of the meat and food there had before it ever had come to market had been sacrificed and offered in praise to some god, some deity. The second way you would have come into contact with it would have been through invitations to meals at other people's homes. And you've got friends that... Um, Maybe aren't Christians, your coworkers, your neighbors, your acquaintances, uh, your family members, and they say, "Hey, why don't you come over for dinner tonight?" Awesome! Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to hang out with you. Let, let's let's eat dinner together. And then the third way would have been through invitations to events within temple precincts and shrines. And such events were very very common in places like Corinth. Maybe, maybe you would have a birthday celebration. Or someone gets married and it's this big thing and we're all going to gather at the temple of whoever and we're gonna, the, 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 the big feast we're all going to have and we're going to celebrate this marriage or perhaps after a wonderful harvest. And maybe there was great concern about the rain and will we have a good crop this year and we had an amazing crop and we're so relieved and we're so excited. We've got all the crop off. Now let's celebrate and let's have a feast together at the temple of whoever. Or perhaps some great business venture that went well this was quite common and this third particular venue uh, events within temple precincts and shrines seems to be the particular context of first corinthians chapter 8 and we see that there in verse 10 where her, um, verse 10 specifically mentions eating in an idol's temple i think one pastor really captured the essence of what's going on with these kinds of issues when in summary he said something like this he said there are many matters that are not specified in Scripture. But they are nonetheless scriptural issues, and often they're, they're significant issues. They really are a big deal, some of them at least. But they tend to lack short and simple answers due to their complexity, and the answers are not always the same depending on the particular context and a variety of variables. And furthermore, he says, right answers to these questions often require a great deal of self-mistrust. You know, maybe I don't quite have all the answers. Maybe I haven't really thought through this from, from every angle. Maybe I haven't thought through all the theology. And it's interesting, when he talks about the answers not always being the same, depending on the context, that's exactly what's going on with this meat offered to idols thing in Corinth. Paul's answer on meat offered to idols varies based on whether it was purchased at the marketplace, eaten at the home of a friend, or consumed at the temple of a pagan deity. And Paul says, yeah, well, if this happens, then you should do this. And if it, it's just all so nuanced. And I think oftentimes we don't like that. It's like, well, just give me the black and white answer. This is right and wrong all the time. And boom, boom, boom. This is always okay. That's always wrong. And yet there are issues in the Christian life that, you know, it's not that simple. And often it's very nuanced with tons of different variables in the particular context and particular situation. So how should a Christian wrestle through these types of things? Well, big picture, you must discuss and decide difficult issues God's way. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 8 sets out to help us know how to do. And so what I'd like to do, I'd like to read through this whole chapter, and then we will simply look at the first half of it together this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, let's look at verses 1 to 13. Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. That's in quotation marks. It appears to be something that the Corinthians were saying. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This quote-unquote knowledge, Paul says, puffs up. But love builds up. 
If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat or no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. As Christians discuss difficult issues and they make their statements about those difficult issues and they make their decisions about them, there are often two very, very missing ingredients. And the first is an attitude, and the second is an action that flows from that attitude. And we want to look together this morning at, at these missing ingredients. Today we're just going to look at the first one, an attitude. And it is love. Love is needed to decide difficult issues. Uh, what many of the Corinthians had was knowledge of a certain set of facts pertaining to the issue at hand, pertaining to meat offered to idols. What they lacked was love. And Paul drives home the point that knowledge alone is not enough to decide difficult issues. It's not enough. You also need love. If you make decisions on difficult issues based on knowledge alone, you will often make very, very poor decisions that actually hurt your brothers and sisters in Christ. Knowledge is not bad in and of itself, but knowledge by itself presents some serious, serious liabilities, Paul says. How so? Well, your knowledge can puff you up and tear others down. Look at verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, Paul is addressing something that the Corinthians have specifically brought up. Every time you see that language of now concerning, Paul is responding to, to, to some, some, a letter or something from the Corinthians that he had received. And they're asking about food offered to idols. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. There are certain things about this issue that I, Paul says, the apostle know, that you know, that probably everybody in your church intellectually knows. But this quote-unquote knowledge, Paul says, it puffs up. And in contrast to that, but love builds up. Paul says, listen guys, you and I both know a couple things about this issue. What is it that they know? Well, if we were to skip down to verse 4, we see what it is that Paul is referring to. Verse 4 says, uh, we know that an idol has no real existence. Okay, everybody, idols aren't real. <laughs> we all know that. Like it's just rocks and it's just logs that have been carved they're not real and second there's no god but one 
There's only one God. You and I both know that intellectually. We know that as a fact because the scripture teaches it. We all know that, but that's not the only deciding factor in this issue. And then Paul says that, that knowledge puffs off, puffs, puffs up, while on the contrary, love builds up. Have you ever noticed that when people discuss difficult issues, that the discussion typically centers around the facts and the facts alone? Uh, for example, someone might say this, you know, on this particular issue, I mean, I've studied this. I have studied this issue, and in fact, I've, I've looked at all the biblical facts. I've looked at all the biblical texts. I've looked at all the, the relevant theology. I've looked at all the other facts. I've looked at the scientific facts. I've looked at the biological facts. I've looked at the historical facts. I have looked at all the information, and I've got all of it, and I've studied it, and I've got the facts, and now after having studied the facts and, and worked through all that, I now feel convinced that my view is the right view. And therefore, based on all my study, all my research, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that because I think that this is best. And whether I say it to you or not, I think that you should do the exact same thing. I may, I may or may not say that, but I'm actually thinking it. Like my view is definitely the right one. Often knowledge is accompanied by a great, great deal of pride, judgmentalism, and superiority. And once you've ironed out your convictions and your understanding of the facts and relevant theology and all of that, it's extremely easy then to use that as a club against other people. Or think to yourself, or perhaps even say it out loud, that everybody else is wrong or ungodly. Your knowledge can puff you up and tear others down. But there's another liability, namely that your knowledge can be incomplete. Look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, if anyone thinks that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If anybody is arrogant enough to think that they've got this complicated issue all sorted out and neatly packaged for themselves and everybody else, then there's probably a lot that they don't know. Or there's probably a lot that they're choosing to ignore or not look at, or grapple with, or wrestle with. If you pride yourself in thinking that you know everything about some of these difficult issues, you're probably out to lunch, and you probably have a lot to learn. Paul is implying to the Corinthians that there are things that they don't understand, and that they haven't thought about yet. And the funny thing is, they think they have. Like what? What might Paul be referring to? Well, in context here, it seems that one of the biggest ideas, they don't seem to know very much about love. Maybe they're like the theological bulldogs there in the church, and they just got it all kind of figured out. But they really don't seem to know very much about love. Theological knowledge does not equal spiritual maturity. I mean, you, can, you can have robust theology and not be spiritually mature. They don't know very much about love. They also don't yet grasp the ideas that Paul is going to work through in verses 7 to 13. He goes, have you even thought about your brother? You don't seem to know a few things about him. That even if he intellectually shares this knowledge that you have, he can't seem to get his heart to match it. He can't seem to get his conscience to match it. And have you considered his past? Have you considered his life before he was saved? You don't seem to know anything about that. And have you considered all these other things about how your decisions might impact your brother? 
And they also don't fully understand the theological complexity of the issue that they're working through. It's funny, though, because they actually think that they're the ones who have it all figured out theologically. They're the ones who have wrestled with the the big, robust theology, and they've sorted it through, and they've got it figured out. They've sorted through the robust theology that that none of the other little theological peons in Corinth could could grasp. And they think it's as simple as verse 4, that an idol has no real existence and there's no God but one. See, it's just that simple. Therefore, eating meat offered to a so-called, quote-unquote, God in the temple of a pagan deity, well, it's inconsequential. It doesn't even matter. And they're looking at the issue from a very, very narrow, one-dimensional lens. What's interesting is that Paul really hasn't shown all of his cards yet. And he's not going to for some time. And what I mean by that is this. Later in chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, Paul is going to completely forbid eating meat offered to idols in a temple. He's basically going to say, don't even go there. Do not do that, period. But you don't get that idea in this text. And he's going to forbid it later on theological grounds that the Corinthians haven't even considered. Namely, that where pagan religion is practiced, that is the location of demonic activity. Uh, Look with me over at chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, where Paul is going to come back to this issue that he's addressing in chapter 8. In chapter 10, verse 19, he, he goes, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, absolutely not. Paul's saying, I'm not going to say that. An idol is nothing. There is no God but one. We talked about that back in chapter 8. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, referring to the Lord's Supper, and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than they? Why doesn't Paul play those cards back in chapter 8? I mean, he's going to completely forbid this practice that they're arguing theologically that they should do. Why doesn't he do that two chapters earlier? Well, I think it's this because it's a knowledge argument. He could crush their argument on their own turf through a knowledge argument, but he doesn't go there right away. Why? Because if he goes there right away, he doesn't have the chance to deal with the issue that he's dealing with in chapter 8, and that's their heart. It's their attitude. He doesn't have the chance to deal with their arrogant attitude first and go, have you... Are you approaching this with love and care and concern for your brother? For you, it's just theology. They need to love and care about their brothers. Your knowledge can be incomplete. And you need to be humble enough to recognize that. In fact, you should probably assume that your knowledge is incomplete. Particularly, the the more complex the issue is. Well, your knowledge is more than likely incomplete. God's knowledge of everything and everyone is perfect and complete. Verse 3, I want you to look at this verse. It says, if anyone loves God. And isn't that the question? Who loves God? 
If anyone loves God, he is known, intimately known by God. God knows that person and he knows that that person loves him. Can we just establish that if you love Jesus and, and you, you intimately love him, then he knows you and he knows that. Now how exactly this verse, verse 3, relates to the previous verses, at least in Paul's mind, is somewhat hard to determine. We ask the question, what was his intent as the author here of this verse? What was he trying to convey specifically to the Corinthians? And it feels like as we read verse 3, it's somewhat hard to, how exactly is he fitting this in and connecting it? It feels like verse 3 is kind of like this proverb hanging loosely at the end of the paragraph as some kind of contrast to what he's just said. And it, interpreters, commentators, everybody's kind of wrestling with, what. it's just kind of a tough verse to relate exactly back to the previous section and, and know how to do that. And I would say this, I'm not sure of Paul's exact intent, but I wonder if he might be getting at what happens with these kinds of difficult issues. We come to our knowledgeable conclusions, as we should, right? We open up our Bibles, and we do our own research, and we do our own study, and we, we come to our own conclusions, and we reach our convictions based on our study of God's Word. And then what happens is, having reached those conclusions and positions, we tend to become very judgmental of people who hold a different view. And it goes something like this. We, we think that person's view of alcohol is different than my view of alcohol. And, and, I, and I mean that in both directions. Their view is much more tight than mine. Their view is much looser than mine. That person's view of alcohol is different than mine. That person's view on worship styles is different than mine. That person's view on clothing and modesty is different than my view on clothing and modesty. That person's view on entertainment choices, it's different than mine. That person's view on how the church relates to the government, it's different than mine. And that person's view on educating their children is different than mine. Therefore, that person must not love Jesus very much or as much as I love Jesus. If they really loved Jesus, they would do exactly what I do. Now, can I just ask you a question? Is that not exactly what we are prone to do? Here it is. I've studied this. I've researched this. And I've come to these convictions and based on where my convictions are, I judge everybody else. I decide on everybody else. And, I, and that is true on both sides of whatever coin it is. We judge people, their motives, and their love for God based on where they land on difficult issues. One of the things that has seriously grieved me as a Christian throughout uh, the pandemic is the number of pastors and churches on both sides of whatever issue it is standing up in their pulpits and tweeting from their smartphones the verdict on who loves Jesus and who does not, on who is faithful to Jesus and who is not. And as with so many other things, what happens in the pulpit tends to trickle down and permeate the pew as well. Do you realize that such judgments have not built up God's people? 
can we just acknowledge that that is not right or godly? And maybe we all need to remember what this passage says, that knowledge puffs up. And in contrast to that, love builds up. And then this next verse, if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Whatever our viewpoints are on arguably difficult issues, whether they be things COVID or things Christian liberty, we should hold them and practice them with love and let God be the judge. Let God be the the one who decides who loves him and who does not. Who are you to dare to be the judge of that? We have no business in that space. And actually what we should probably do is lovingly assume the best of our brothers on either side of whatever issue it is at the time and their love for Jesus. Verse 3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. We've seen that your knowledge can puff you up and tear other people down. We've also seen that your knowledge can be complete. And now, as relates to knowledge, Paul's also going to say, basically, your, your knowledge can be spot on. And that was the case for the Corinthians. Um, their knowledge was spot on and robust, at least in the narrow little realm that they were looking at. But it failed to consider many other factors, and it lacked love. Look at verse 4. He goes, therefore, as to the eating of food offered idols. So he's, he's kind of given us some big picture things. And now let's come back to your topic here. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." In these verses, Paul agrees with the Corinthians about the theology that they're putting on the table. In fact, he's in total agreement. I 100% agree with you. An idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. How could he not agree? They were right on the one aspect of theology that they were thinking about, and Scripture clearly affirms this. Turn back with me to the book of Psalms. Uh, We'll go to Psalm 115 together. The Corinthians are spot on. I mean, their their conclusions are coming from Scripture here. Look at Psalm 115. And look with me, beginning at verse 4. I'll read down through verse 8. It says, Their idols, speaking of idolaters, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They're made by men. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Those who make them become dead and lifeless and senseless, just like their idol. They don't exist. They're not real. And that's very clearly, easily argued from Scripture. Idols aren't real. There's only one God. In verse 6, Paul affirms that there's only one God, God the Father. And there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ. And and what he's getting at is we are his by both creation and redemption. We were made by him and for him. As Colossians chapter 1 talks about, 
and, and part of what's implied behind that is that all things, including meat, were made by him. And all things are for his pleasure and glory, including meat and food. So we should have no problem eating in an idol's temple then, right? Like theologically, we know like this is nothing. What's going on in here is actually ridiculous. Like somebody carved that statue with a knife. They, they, they cut a log in half and they made an idol out of one half of the log and they warmed themselves by the fire of the other half of the log. <laughs> this is ridiculous. And so to be here eating the meat, like it just, it's just not a big deal, right? Paul says, not so fast. Your knowledge can be spot on. However, knowledge alone is not sufficient to decide difficult issues. What must happen is that knowledge must be applied by love to decide difficult issues. The way of love supersedes the way of knowledge alone. And the answer to the Corinthians question would be found in love, not in knowledge all by itself. And if you don't apply your knowledge and love, then probably what that means is that you're selfishly inflated with it. And Paul's just going to urge the Corinthians, you have to think about your brother. And that, that's what he's going to come to in verses 7 and following. Verse 7, you'll see, however, not all possess this knowledge. He reminds them that, that you have brothers in Christ that you need to think about as you work through this issue. Love is needed to decide difficult issues. And what I'd like to do, just kind of uh, as we wrap up here this morning, is basically just give you a, a few takeaways from this text to think about. Here would be the first one. Expect Christians to disagree on difficult issues and learn to be okay with that and maybe even embrace it as a strength. Texts like this remind us that God is not looking for his people to have unity on every point. But that what he is looking for is that we would all have a unity of approach. We should all be approaching difficult issues with love and humility and care for each other in a way that promotes unity. That's what he's driving for. There's room for alternate viewpoints, but there's only room for one approach, and that approach is love and care for your brother. And in fact, if, we, if you were to go and read Romans chapter 14, for example, and it's going to talk about the conscience and areas in which Christians differ, and he's going to argue that, that believers welcome each other with their differences of conscience. So expect Christians to disagree on difficult issues and learn to be okay with that and maybe even to embrace it as a strength. Second, allow your brothers to disagree with you and welcome them regardless. Don't let the pride of your position keep you from welcoming and loving your brother or putting him down or thinking him less spiritual than you. And I think maybe a, more of a far out application of this text, but one that will, I think, definitely come up in the next section and some of the other biblical texts on the conscience in particular. Third, beware of clustering yourself with people just like you all the time. It's tempting to take the challenge out of church life and personal relationships by looking for a church that checks all of your difficult issue boxes or by hanging out with cliques within your church just like you that land in all the same spots that, that you do on whatever issue. And we take all the difficulty out of, of 
of the family of God. We are different and we wrestle through some of these things and, and, and our consciences and convictions end up in different spots. That's not a bad thing. That's a strength. But then what we're prone to do is go, well, okay, well, I'm going to cluster myself over here with these people who land in all the same spots as me. And these people, the next thing you know, our church is up, made up of, of, of a bunch of cliques, for a lack of a better word. And, and when you do this, when you go, no, no, I, no, that, I, that's not how it is. Like, I, I need to welcome and embrace my brother. And there, there needs to be some give and take here. When you do this, you, you challenge thinking. And what, what's so easy for all of us is, let me live in my echo chamber with everybody who thinks just like I do on this particular difficult issue, and we're just telling each other the same thing the whole time, and we're just in this massive echo chamber with each other. When actually God has put us in this larger family with a lot of differences, with a lot of different perspectives, and and even different degrees of biblical knowledge or, or expertise, God has given us a gift by putting us together. And it's helpful for us to challenge each other's thinking. And when we strive to live this way, what you have is a unity that's produced by the gospel. Not a division marked by all the, all the ways that we're different, but a unity produced by the gospel. And God wants us to fight for that. My convictions, my conscience is in a different place than yours on this issue, but, but you're my brother, and I love you. And through thick or thin, I'm going to stand by your side. As if you want to follow Jesus and I want to follow Jesus, then we're going to follow him together. Another point of application. Assume your knowledge is incomplete on difficult matters. You should not assume that you have full knowledge or understanding of the issue, especially when that issue is not explicit in Scripture. Seriously. There are many such issues like this. And, and Paul is just going to say to these Corinthians, you haven't looked at this from this angle. You haven't considered this, this aspect of theology. And there are many, many issues in the Bible where it's arguably very, very complex. And God didn't just give, here's the chapter and verse. Assume your knowledge is incomplete on difficult matters. And another point of application, learn to listen and ask questions. Instead of assuming that you've got it figured out, try to humbly listen to whatever other factors your brothers might be contributing. Try to understand why, they, why it is that they hold their views. Paul was thinking of theological aspects that the Corinthians hadn't even thought of. And your brothers might be too. You come to some particular difficult issue and you go, man, I've, I've thought through this and I've worked through my view. Again, don't live in an echo chamber. Listen to your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're also, why don't you assume that they're also wrestling through the issue with their Bible and they've probably thought of all these things over here. Maybe you haven't even thought of those things. They might point you to a text that really makes you go, wow, back up. Or, or they may question your line of argument and, and even push you to defend it a little bit. And you're like, ah, I've always thought this, maybe because I grew up with, this is how my conscience was kind of, I don't know, trained in, in my own upbringing. But then when I get probed and pushed on it a little bit, I'm not even sure I can defend it. Learn to listen and ask questions. And finally, final point of application, don't judgmentally decide who loves Jesus. 
Don't even go there. Leave that to God. Instead, why don't you just make sure that you're loving Jesus with a clean conscience? I think that's what God would have all of us to do. Next, next time in this next paragraph, Paul's going to get into some very specific things on what does it look like to care about your brother? What does it look like to apply this knowledge very practically in love? We'll get to that next week. But you must discuss and decide difficult issues God's way. I want to ask you something. Have you been missing this critical ingredient called love? I think it, it's missing so often. It's often missing in my own life. I see that. It's often missing in my heart. It's often missing in our words and discussions and so many other things. Have you been missing this critical ingredient called love? Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me at this time?